John chapter 7, verse 1 is where we're headed this morning. Good to see you all this morning. Um, what a beautiful name it is. Man, I love that song. One of these days we're going to get just raptured right out here during worship service. It's going to be poof, going to be gone. Uh, while you're finding your Bibles on your digital devices, or if you're in the concordance trying to figure out where the Gospel of John is in your real Bible, uh, read our key verse with me, John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Read it real loud with me. Jesus' disciples saw him do many other miraculous signs besides the ones recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life. It's wonderful. All right, believing in Jesus as the Son of God is not a single momentary event. <clears throat> I'm waiting for some of you to catch up with me. We just started, y'all. Come on. Believing in Jesus is not, as the Son of God, is not a single, well, I believed 20 years ago. I'm all good now, so I can coast in from here. Jesus is in no way one-dimensional. Every chapter in the book of John is another revelation. We actually could say that every chapter in the whole Bible, but since we're camping out in the book of John, every chapter in, in, God, in John's revelation of his gospel of Jesus is another revelation of who Jesus is being both 100% man and 100% God. That's good, you guys. It's really good. Some of you are like, really? I just thought I believed Jesus is the son of God and that's good enough. It's just all. No, every chapter we see another facet of how Jesus is man and he is God. God. Uh, we're going to come back to that later. It occurred to me this week while I was studying that John is using the perspective of the skeptic. Mostly, well, several times in the previous text, he's using the perspective of the skeptic. I think he, he was anticipating how people would read his gospel account of Jesus because they would pick up the book of John and they would say, we really are not sure about this man named Jesus. We're not sure who he is. We're not sure that we believe what he says. So they pick up the gospel account of, of Jesus from John and they read it from a skeptical standpoint. The skeptics ask the critical questions of Jesus. Those of us who believe, we tend to not ask those critical questions again. We tend to just be like, I was raised in church. Mom and dad said I should believe in Jesus. So I believe in Jesus. We never ask the critical question. The skeptics ask the critical questions. And John writes from the perspective of the skeptics. He asks questions and he answers them. Who is Jesus really? Where did Jesus come from? We've covered it in previous texts. Where does his power come from? That is legitimate. Where does Jesus get his power from? Is it just in and of himself? Does he come as a representative of some other power, some other entity? And who gives him authority? Because he comes to the Jews, the Jews are asking the question, who gives Jesus authority? Who gives him the right to come and speak to the Jewish leaders? Because they have been the spiritual and political authority until Rome comes in and causes a problem. Now they have to answer the Rome. 
Now Jesus comes in and, well, we're going to give up our spiritual authority. We already gave up our political authority to Rome. And now Jesus comes along and he claims that we should give up our spiritual authority to him. There's something wrong with this picture. Where does his authority come from? Where does his power come from? Who is Jesus really? Then John answers these questions, these critical questions, with actual events and teachings from Jesus' life. Now, if you're a writer, this is ingenious. You ask the critical questions, and then you use the stories, the events, and the teachings of Jesus to answer those critical questions. He builds a rock-solid case for Jesus being God come to earth so that you, so that who? You might believe. Uh, you know what? That just makes me so happy. Uh, you guys need more coffee. All right. In John chapter 7, the question is, why doesn't Jesus promote himself? Why doesn't Jesus take out a billboard? Why doesn't he invest in some Google ads? Then we're going to see how Jesus seeks to humbly draw attention to God the Father, not himself. The attention. Jesus comes as the Son of God, but he sets an example of not drawing attention to himself, but drawing attention to God the Father. Okay? So I titled this this morning, All About the Father. And some of you will be pleased that in chapter 7, I actually am going to make a point. I know through all of chapter 6, I didn't make a point. And some of you, that just drives you crazy that I don't make a point. So I made a point, and they're in your bulletin. So you can see that I'm going to make a point. And I know that the real reason for you wanting to me to make a point is because you know when I'm on number 3, because I'm coming in for a landing, huh? All about the Father. Everyone say, all about the Father. Chapter 7 challenges our typical, modern, middle-class Christianity of America. We pray, I'm saying, I'm making broad statements, okay? We pray only when we are in need. I'm making broad statements, but if the shoe fits, buy the other one and wear the pair. We pray only when we're in need or when we're in serious desire of something, right? Healing, comfort, material things. Lord, I really need a new pickup. God says, who is this? It's Brent. I prayed for you this time last year whenever I wanted a new pickup. We attend church as part of our list of things to do so that we will be seen as a good person. Do you go to church? Sure, I go to church. At least once over the summer. When it's convenient, we go to church. We ask God to bless our work, bless our efforts. God, bless my dreams and come and bless my ambitions. Modern Christianity, when God is available to bless me, I am available to be blessed. But this is about me. It's not about him. In chapter 7, John paints a picture of self-abandonment for the benefit of the glory of God the Father. You with me? 
John paints a picture of self-abandonment for the benefit of the glory of God the Father. I give up living for myself to live for the Father so that the Father will be glorified through me. My life is all about God the Father. Here we go. Verse 1. Point one, not my time. This is God's time. Not my time. This is God's time. After this, okay, I'm going to pause. I know some of you got all excited. You already read the whole sentence. After this, after chapter six, now it's approximately six months if we do the math with the events that are listed in the text. But I want to remind you that John is not written to be a chronological uh, biography of Jesus. John is not writing a biography. He is writing a proof. We ask the critical questions. Who is Jesus? And he answers them. So if you look to John to figure out the timeline and you compare it to the other gospels, you go, well, the gospels don't, don't make sense because they're not in order. No, they're not in order because it's not a biography. It's a proof. We ask the hard questions and John answers them perfectly. Sorry, I get all excited about this. You don't have to get excited. Just absorb, okay? I know. I'm two words into this, and I'm about to get raptured again. After this, yes! <laughs> After this, six months or whatever later, Jesus traveled around Galilee. I hope that you can picture where Galilee is at. I was starting to put a map up, but it's not all that important this morning. He wanted to stay out of Judea. Remember, that was the southern part of Israel. Where the Jewish leaders was plotting, were plotting his death. He wanted to stay out of Judea because that's where the Jewish leaders are plotting to kill him. Verse 2. But soon it was time for the Jewish festival of shelters. We'll come back to that. And Jesus' brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea where your followers can see your miracles. Exclamation point. You can't become famous if you hide like this, if you can do such wonderful things, show yourself to the world. If, Jesus, you can do such wonderful things, then show yourself to the world. For his brothers didn't believe in him. It's a great text. Jesus intentionally he is intentionally avoiding the Jewish leaders because he knows that they are planning to kill him. He's traveling and he's teaching and he's preaching around this region of Galilee. It's west of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, it's close to the area of Nazareth where he grew up. It's the region he's familiar with, a region that would be familiar with him. Then whenever the festival of shelters comes up, Jesus' entourage, his group of followers, now uh, they, they encourage Jesus. Let me back up. Jesus' entourage, entourage know that Jews from all over will be gathering in Jerusalem, in Judea, to celebrate the festival of shelters. 
The festival of shelters in some of your Bible may be listed as the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. It goes by several names. It is one of the most popular annual Jewish feasts. Some, some people say there's three major Jewish feasts, and this was one of them. Big deal. All the Jews come to Jerusalem to celebrate. It was held sometime in, in September or the 1st of October. For seven days, people would live in shelters made out of branches. So they would come, and they would make their little, uh, their little tents out of uh, branches, and they would live in them. It was kind of a Jewish thanksgiving for the harvest, but it was also remembering God's provision for when the Israelites were wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years, and they lived in temporary housing then because they were moving around. So it's remembering God's provision. All the Jews come to Jerusalem to celebrate together, to live in these little temporary brush branch tents and have a great celebration together. It stands to reason that this is a good time for Jesus to dazzle a bunch of people and create a greater following. Now, I, my degree is in business whenever I went to college, business administration. I took one marketing class, and I always kind of liked marketing. If I could do it over again, I'd go back and specialize in marketing just because I enjoyed it. I don't know what that has to do with ministry or anything, but uh, that one class that I took on marketing would tell me that you find the big group of people and you do something spectacular to draw a crowd if you want to get a message to them, right? And Jesus' followers, they understand this. Jesus, if you want to be famous, you got to go where the people are. Duh. Right? If Jesus had a bigger audience... The reasoning goes, if Jesus had a bigger audience to witness his miracles, then how many people witnessed him turning a boy's lunch into a gigantic meal? 5,000 plus women and children. If we could only have a bigger audience, if more people could see Jesus do something supernatural, if only we could see a, a miracle with a whole bunch of people, then the world would believe in Jesus. If we could just see a bigger miracle, a more glorious miracle. But then we have verse 5, which causes a problem. It's kind of the anomaly here because it says, for even his brothers didn't believe in him. These are the people that don't believe. These are the people who have seen Jesus heal the lame man at the pool of Bethesda. They're the ones who saw Jesus perform the miracle of feeding the 5,000 with the boy's lunch. But they do not believe they're thinking of Jesus. You go to Jerusalem and you perform a miracle in front of a whole bunch of people and people will believe. Their thinking is seriously flawed, proven by their own lack of belief. Are you, are you tracking with me? Seeing miracles does not necessarily lead to belief in Jesus. 
maybe not all of us, but some of us, if Jesus would just perform, if God would do a miracle in my life, then I would believe. No, you wouldn't. If God would just do such and such in my life, if he would provide for me now, remember that's the deal when we're at the end of our rope and it's, Lord, if you will just provide for me now, if you'll do what I need for you to do for me now, then I'll believe. And that's not true. That's not true. Verse six, Jesus replied, now is not the right time for me to go, but you can go anytime. The world, watch this. The world can't hate you, but it does hate me because I accuse it of doing evil. Verse 8, you go on. I'm not going to this festival because my time has not yet come. I just can't get myself out of this picture. Because I know how I would be. If I could perform miracles, I would be looking for the crowd. <laughs> I'd be like, hey, you guys, look, watch this. This is going to be cool. <laughs> Jesus says, no, it's not my time. I'm not seeking a crowd. I'm not seeking to be seen. It's not my time yet. Verse 9, after saying these things, Jesus remained in Galilee. Jesus understood there are bigger issues at play here than just performing miracles before people. It's not about the miracles. It's not about Jesus in this text. Miracles are not going to make Jesus famous because, here's why. Because even us sitting here, we'd be like, what? If, if Jesus shows up in Jerusalem and does a bunch of miracles, it stands to reason that he would become famous. But, he tells us, miracles are not going to make Jesus famous because the corresponding message that Jesus is going to preach reveals the evil actions of people. And it's going to make people angry at him. He's going to do a miracle, present what is right, the message of God. And instead, if Jesus goes and performs miracles and preaches repentance from sin, he won't be famous. He will be crucified. Jesus knows this, and it's not that time. The message of Jesus, the message of Christianity is not that different today. We can introduce people to the bread of life. We can say, man, our pastor at Desert Heights has been preaching from the book of John for the last six months. And it's about how God has come to you. That was a little weak, you guys. After six months, I expected it to be right there. God has come to I don't know who you're talking about. <laughs> you? Yeah, it's a great message. That's wonderful. They're happy, but then we tell them, as we go through the text, we're going to see that God calls us to repentance. He calls us away from sin. Calls us away from sin that is causing damage, and then we need to change. And then it's not just the bread of life, it's repentance, and then they get angry at, at us. Jesus simply tells his brothers, my time has not yet 
come. God the Father has a time set for Jesus. Get your brain around that? God the Father has a time set for Jesus. Now, the extrapolation of that is God has a time for you. I don't mind God being God of creation. I don't mind God being God over Christianity, but I don't really like the idea of God being God over me. I am God over me. And that's exactly what God is wanting to save us from. Jesus knows that this is not about his fame, but it is about God's glory. Even Jesus, the Son of God, knows that timing is about God the Father, not about what he wants or what he sees as best. You follow? God the Father has perfect timing. God the Father has perfect timing. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that, like in the course of life or just on Sunday morning? Because on Sunday morning, it's easy to come in here and say, oh, God is good all the time. He's got perfect timing. I just love God. And then on Monday morning, you're like, why doesn't God show up and help me pay the bills? Where is God's timing today? God the Father has perfect timing. So for the moment, Jesus remained in Galilee while his brothers left to go to Jerusalem to the feast. Verse 10. I just had a passing thought as I'm thinking about time. One of the teachers threatened me this morning because uh, after we had promotions last week, we had last week was Upgrade Sunday, right? And this one teacher in particular said, I'm going to have about 20 kids in my class. And I said, well, we're doing communion, so service is going to go long. And she gave me the evil eye. <laughs> Pastor Brute. I'm totally exaggerating, but it was a little bit like that. But after, I'm kidding, after his brothers left for the festival, so picture this in your head. So they all left to go to the festival in Jerusalem and Judea. Jesus also went, though secretly, staying out of the public view. The Jewish leaders tried to find him at the festival. The Jewish leaders, they tried to find him at the festival because they anticipated that he had come and want to make a big show because they had heard that he turned, uh, uh, you know, he's turned the water into the wine. He's fed the 5,000 with a little boy's lunch. He healed the layman on the Sabbath. We expect this is a guy who's trying to attack, attract attention to himself. We have a whole bunch of people here. So the Jewish leaders are expecting Jesus to show up and make a big fiasco. So the Jewish leaders tried to find Jesus at the festival and they kept asking if anyone had seen him. Have you seen him? Have you seen him? Have you seen him? There was a lot of grumbling about him among the crowds. It's hard for us to get our brain around that, right? People grumbling about Jesus. Some argued he's a good man, but others said he's nothing but a fraud who deceives the people. But no one had the courage to speak favorably about him in public, for they were afraid of getting in trouble with the Jewish leaders. So evidently, the Jewish leaders had not been discreet about their intentions with Jesus. Even those in the crowd here were careful about what they said about Jesus for fear of the wrath 
of the Jewish leaders. They knew that the Jewish leaders were out to get Jesus. So they're not going to speak favorably of Jesus because then they'll get called in and questioned by the Jewish council. Even though people thought that Jesus very well may have been the Messiah, they did not speak out because they were afraid of what the Jewish leaders might do to them. Jesus shows up. Not in a big display of magnificence, but he shows up discreetly. I'm distracted with another thought. Here we are. There's this great analogy here. Waiting for God to show up in our lives in a magnificent way, and he doesn't. He comes and he says, hey, you need my help. We'll perform a miracle, and I'll accept your help. And Jesus says, no, I am the son of God. I can transform your world. Well, show me something grand. I'm just here to totally change your life and give you eternal life. Well, when Jesus comes in a magnificent way and he, like Paul, he knocks me down on the road to Damascus and shines a light and speaks in an audible voice, then I will believe. And that's not true. That's not true. Jesus comes discreetly to us. He comes almost quietly. You need what God the Father has. And Jesus brings it to you. He's not traveling with his group this time because he comes and he wants to be quiet. He wants to be discreet. He doesn't want to draw a bunch of attention to himself. It is not his time yet. Although Jesus may desperately, I do believe that there's a part of Jesus being man and being God. He desperately wants to teach the people what is truth. He wants to let them know the way to salvation because they're being misled by the Jewish leadership. Even though he wants to tell them, he is very careful to honor the timing of God the Father. He is, it is not about my timing. It is all about the Father. Number two, not my message. It's not my message. It's God's message. Verse 14, he says, Then, midway through the festival, midway, so we're halfway through the seven-day uh, party, then midway through the festival, Jesus went up to the temple, goes up to the temple, and he began to teach. The people were surprised when they heard him. How does he know so much when he, doesn't, when he hasn't been trained, they asked. So he doesn't go and perform miracles and dazzle everybody, but he does. Three or four days into the feast, Jesus decides to make himself a little more public. And he's, he's not performing miracles, but he is teaching. And his teaching is astounding the people. Right? So Jesus told them, verse 16, my message is not my own. It comes from God who sent me. It's not my own message. It comes from God the Father who sent me. He's making that claim again. He'd made it previously. Now he's making it again. It comes from God who sent me. Verse 17. Anyone who wants to do the will of God, hold on to that. I'm not going to camp on it very much, but it's important. Anyone who wants to do the will of God, God, not themselves. Anyone who wants to do the will of God will know 
whether my teaching is from God or is merely my own. This is huge. Verse 18, those who speak for themselves want glory only for themselves. But a person who seeks to honor the one who sent him speaks truth, not lies. I know I'm going fast. Moses gave you the law, but none of you obeys it. In fact, you're trying to kill me. The crowd replied, you're demon possessed. Who's trying to kill you? Because the crowd doesn't know what the Jewish leaders are all up to. Jesus could have, whenever they, whenever they say, this man is teaching things that are brilliant, that are beyond his training, Jesus could have smiled real big and said, hmm, yes, I am brilliant. He could have. But no, Jesus explains very clearly, very clearly, my message is not my own. It comes from who? God who sent me. Jesus takes no credit for the message that he's teaching. He points to God the Father. It comes from God who has sent him, who has sent me here. Jesus speaks the words of God. Jesus speaks the words of God. He adds nothing of his own to what God the Father has given him to say. Now, the contrast is, is that we have the Jewish leaders who have taken the law, the law of Moses, and as they passed it from one generation of Jews to the next generation of Jews, they may have embellished it a little bit. You know, added their own commentary, maybe added some of their own rules to go along with the rules that God gave Moses. Those are good rules, but then let's add some stuff to it, right? Because, I mean, if God sets a standard, we can set a higher standard, and that's even better. And then the next generation says, well, you know, our previous generation of, of Jewish leaders, they gave us a law, and let's, we can one-up that. And we just one-up, and we one-up, and, and now we've embellished on, and we've given our own commentary on the law of Moses. And ultimately, they are corrupting the truth of the law of Moses. Are you with me? Jesus came and says, it's not my message, it's God the Father's message. The Jews say, we have the law of Moses that God gave to Moses, but they've embellished it, they've changed it, they've edited it. Now they're not, their message is their own. It's no longer the word of God. They were not honoring Moses in part because they had edited Moses' words but also because they were not even living in obedience to Moses' words. Are you with me? They're saying, oh, this is the word of God. And Jesus says, no, it's not because you've edited it so far. It's no longer the word of Moses. It's no longer the word of God. And in fact, you are not living in obedience to any of it. You're a bunch of heathens. You're, you're evil. That always goes over, where, over well with the crowd. You know, I know. On Sunday morning, I tell people, dude, you're, you're evil. You're going to hell without Jesus. And they're like, yeah, I'll find a different church. <laughs> In a nutshell, Jesus is saying, you are trying to kill me for speaking the truth from God the Father. You're trying to kill me for speaking the truth, the message of God the Father, when you have corrupted God's message with your own words and you've disobeyed God's message that he gave you. Jesus makes it clear. 
He attracts no glory to himself, none whatsoever. It's not my message. I don't get to edit it. I don't get to to change it so that I can make it more glamorous for myself. I don't get to take credit for it. I just preach and speak the words of God and I live in obedience for it, to it. I realize that whenever scripture challenges, I'm shifting gears by the way, when scripture challenges our, our view of self-serving Christianity, I know none of us would ever do this, right? When scripture challenges our view of self-serving Christianity, that may not be popular. However, it is not our message to edit. I am very well aware that over the last uh, 16 years of Desert Heights, there have been times that I have preached the text and people who have previously loved Desert Heights, they're like, hmm, don't like that message. I'm not going back. Or they'll tell me later, why would you preach something that is so offensive whenever you know that there's people in the congregation who that's going to offend? <laughs> I know, first of all, I don't know everything. I, if I've put that air on, I'm sorry. I need to tell you right up front, I don't know. I know very little, actually. Very, very. Hang out with me and I'll prove it. Okay? So I don't know what's going to offend you. Number two, I don't get to edit. I remember once upon a time, it was a thousand years ago. I'm exaggerating. I tell my kids a million times, do not exaggerate. That was funny, y'all. I don't even remember what I was going to say. <clears throat> it's not my message. It's not your message to edit. The scriptures are God's message, and it's all about the Father. I know what I was going to say. I was preaching through Ephesians, and it's the passage about don't be lascivious, don't be a partier, don't be, don't be given to drunkenness, don't just all the don'ts, right? And there was a group of, like, I think it was four young men who walked in right as I started to preach, and I knew one of them. And I knew him well enough to know that if, if this scripture has ever been right up the fairway, <laughs> these guys, if they stay through service, they're going to get hit in the head, broadside. Never came back. Well, Brent, we need to be more merciful. No, here's the deal. We speak the Father's truth. The reason that we speak the Father's truth is because only, only, everyone say only, only God's message of salvation saves. Now we can take his message of salvation and we can edit it so more people like it, but that does not get them to salvation and eternal life. We cannot edit it. Only those who want to surrender their will going back to the text, only those who want to surrender their will for God's will will recognize Jesus's words as the words of God the Father. Think about it. It is all about the Father. It's not my message. It is God's message. Number three, not my miracle. 
Not my miracle. It's God's miracle. In verse 21, I know some of you are already thinking, wow, we've covered more text this morning than we've covered in the last two months. It's because it's a narrative. It all sticks together really well. Verse 21, Jesus replied, I did one miracle on the Sabbath, and you were amazed. But, this is probably not a good amazed, actually. This is probably, what? You, you did a miracle on the Sabbath? We don't do anything on the Sabbath. Nothing on the Sabbath. Nothing on the Sabbath. I did one miracle on the Sabbath, and you were amazed. But you work on the Sabbath, too. Remember, he's talking to the Jewish leaders, keeper of the religious law. We have a way that was passed down from Moses. My great, 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 great grandfather, he added to it, made it more holy than God gave it to Moses. And then his descendant made it even more holy. And we have generations of being more holy than God. So we are very holy. And Jesus says, but you work on the Sabbath too when you obey Moses's, when you do obey Moses's law of circumcision. Actually, this isn't just a mosaic law. Actually, this tradition of circumcision began with the patriarchs long before the law of Moses. It was given to Abraham 400 years before Moses. Follow? Verse 23. For if the correct time for circumcising your son falls on the Sabbath, you go ahead and do it so as to not break the law of Moses. So why should you be angry with me for healing? This is an important word. Why would you be angry at Jesus for healing a man on the Sabbath? There's a contrast there. We'll come back to it. Verse 24 Look beneath the surface so you can judge correctly. It's almost like every paragraph in chapter 7 has this explanation and then this weird verse at the end that kind of dangles out there. What? It's out of place. Look beneath the surface so you can judge correctly. Jesus is using the traditions and the laws of the Jewish forefathers to make his point. Circumcision happened on the eighth day. Every time, even if the eighth day was the Sabbath, the eighth day after a little boy was born, he got circumcised no matter what. As opposed to, I don't really want to get into the idea, the picture of circumcision, but let's just summarize it as disassembling. disassembling your newborn son on the eighth day is going to happen even if it's the Sabbath. But then Jesus comes along and he says, healing a man, making a man whole in more than a circumcision way, making a man whole in a spiritual, emotional, eternal way. If I make someone whole on the Sabbath, then you're offended by that. But if you take somebody apart on the Sabbath, that's okay. The Jews were completely absorbed with keeping the law of dismantling a man. They were so absorbed that they could not allow for God. 
They had their laws, they had their traditions, and they were so involved in their law and their tradition that they could not allow God. We are so busy serving God that if he shows up and does something different than what we think he should do, then we're just going to ignore him. Do you see anything ironic about that? We are going to keep the law. God shows up and wants to do something different. Nope, nope, no, no. God can't even change our rules. The Jews were completely absorbed, so completely absorbed that they could not allow for God to perform the miracle of healing on the Sabbath. Jesus' point is that God is who heals even on the Sabbath. Now, it's, it's reaching to make that point right now, but look on as we go on. He says, in that last phrase, he says, look beneath the surface so that you can judge correctly. Look beneath the surface so that you can judge correctly. All the Jews could see. All they were, all they were trained to see, all they had the ability to see was a man breaking their law on the Sabbath. Yeah, but he healed him. He made him whole. doesn't matter. He broke the law on the Sabbath. All they could see was a man claiming to be sent from God, which also broke their traditions, not necessarily their law, but their traditions, because then they said that, that you can't claim to be from God. So when the Messiah comes, he can't claim to be from God. <laughs> Duh. He performed miracles Jesus performed his miracles, and his message was profound, but that didn't matter. All that they could see was that Jesus was breaking their man-made rules. He was doing something on the Sabbath that they had determined he shouldn't be doing. Beneath the surface, beneath the surface, they would look beneath the surface so that they can judge correctly. They would see that it is God come in flesh. Because he is, Jesus is passionate about mankind. He's passionate about mankind knowing the glory of God the Father. So he sends his son in the flesh so that we can see him and see his glory to see that he is full of faithfulness. Jesus doesn't perform miracles so that we see him. He performs miracles so that we can see God the Father. Does that make sense? This is all about the Father. This has nothing to do with you and I. It's all about the Father. God the Father has sent his Son so that we, so that you and I, might believe in him and have eternal life. You and I must be careful that we do not force Jesus to fit into our perspective of what we think God should be. I'm a little bit on a, sand, uh, on a soapbox because just the course of events, you know, I run into people, have conversations here at the church, outside of the church, and I hear people defining who God is and defining their relationship with God based on what they, it is they want out of God. Not on who God says he is. That's a big difference, sweetheart. 
really big difference because what I want to drive does not determine what's parked in the driveway. That's a true story. I drive what I can afford, not what I want. The God that you want is not necessarily the God of the Bible. What the God that you want is not necessarily the God who gives us eternal life on his terms. This is why it's so important that we read our Bibles and we read our Bibles. I'm, I'm getting off track so much. Uh, we read our Bibles with an open mind to what the text is saying, not what you've already been taught. Because I've had conversations with people about soap. And so what'd you read today? And they tell me, and I'm like, but that's not what the text says at all. You read it, but you had something else going on in your mind when you were reading the text. And your soap actually has nothing to do with what was written in the word of God. You came up with some crazy idea. And now you're believing crazy ideas because you didn't read the text. But I did read the text. Brent, yeah, but you, you read it with your own thoughts already in your mind. You already put on this filter and... Out of a desire, get back to your notes, Brent. Oh, yeah, we're doing good. Out of a desire for God's will in our lives. Are you hearing me? Out of a desire for God's will in our lives. Not my will, not our own will. Out of a desire for God's will in our lives, God gives us the ability to see Jesus as Lord of all. That's a huge statement. Out of a desire for God's will in our lives. He set it up in the first part of the text, in the first five verses. He says, those who desire God's will in their lives, they will see that this is not Jesus' words. This is God the Father's message. Only those who desire the will of God. Those of us who have our own will and want God to bless our will will never understand who Jesus is. That's harsh. This is all about the Father. It's not about you. It is about the glory of the Father. It's not about you. It is about the pleasure of the Father. It's not about you. But I thought if I got saved, I was gonna just, it was going to be a wonderful life. In some ways, it is. And some, it's in, in very eternal ways. It is. Doesn't mean that, well, I, I decided I'm going to serve Jesus, so now I'm going to get a new truck. No, no, that's not the way it works. Trust me. <laughs> I'm stuck on the truck thing this morning. Previous conversation. <laughs> we trust in the message of the one and only eternal living God. We trust in the message of the eternal living God, that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. And that it is only through Jesus, through his body, through his blood, through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, that we have salvation provided to us. We surrender, just as Jesus surrenders himself on the cross, we surrender ourselves to him wholly and completely for his glory. Not our own will. 
not our own desires, not our own glory, not our own rights to brag, not so that people can see how good of a person we are. It has nothing to do with you. It has everything, everything to do with God the Father. Wow. Once we can separate our will out of this equation, then we are free to worship God with every aspect of our lives. But as long as we hold back, well, I will serve God as long as I get what I want. You don't understand God's message. You don't understand it because because the illustration is Jesus dying on the cross, giving his life for our salvation. That's all he wants. He wants, as much as he made it about God the Father, he wants you to make it about God the Father. We surrender our lives to him. We surrender our will to him. We surrender our desires to him so that, so that his glory will be seen in and through our lives. That's the trade-off. You give up your lump of coal for the glory of God. Good trade. Good trade. Let's stand together and bow our heads. Father, we thank you for your mercy and your grace. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you that today we can look to Jesus and we we can learn from the life of Jesus. We see that, that his power comes from you, that his authority comes from you, that his miracles are performed because of you. Jesus is all who he was because of you. So, Father, we surrender our lives to you today. Lord, I pray for all of us here this morning that we not hold back for ourselves what we want of ourselves, that we not hold back the desires that we have for our own lives or maybe even the desires that we have for those that we love. But Lord, we surrender all of our desires to you because we know that we're not even capable of desiring the greatness that you desire that you desire for our lives and that you desire for those that we love. Lord, we surrender all that we are, all that we could ever wish to be. We, we surrender our will to you. We, we just, Lord, we stand at the foot of the cross and we say, I am nothing and you are everything. This is all about your glory. Father, help us to give up more of who we are, all of who we are, so that your glory will be evident in our lives so that those around us will see your glory and they will be drawn to Jesus Christ, so that they will be drawn to your message of salvation, so that they will have eternal life and their lives will glorify you also. Father, we just love you and thank you that we get to be a part of your family, the body of Christ. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.